fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. on FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Joe Goldberg is in the room. He come back from the Boucher. I'm back from the Boucher Con. It's a great time. It's first my first flight in four years. I used to fly around the world for work for decades. 100,000-mile clubs, and every airport was my home. And then I look at, you know, go to O'Hare, and I'm going, wow, I have not been in this place for four years. And I had a little anxiety. Yeah. Like, wow, I'm a little rusty and older. Yeah. It all comes back. It came well, back. <laughs> I had to elbow go. the people next to you. Hey, that's my armrest. Get the hell out of here. Yeah, I had to go back and forth right through COVID. And, you know, you have to get tested up the nose and out the nose and all that stuff. So, yeah, I do, I do, but I don't miss... I don't miss it. I'm, I'm not really fond of it, but you know, I'm getting Daddy old and cranky. Groove. You know, I'm in the group. I need to. I need to get out. Yeah. Okay. We'll start sending you places every week. Go ahead. Yeah. Anyway. Well, now joining us, we've got another Goldberg. Uh, another Goldberg that writes. Now he's not quite as popular as you. He hasn't written as many books. He's not. He's not. He's not. On the, <laughs> he's not on the level of the Joe Goldberg. But he's got a new book out called Malibu Burning. It's a Sharp and Walker, book one of two books. So, Lee Goldberg, thank you for being here. It's great to be here. And, and you're proving right now with this podcast what Elon Musk is saying, that the Jews are taking over the world and crushing Twitter and doing all sorts of nefarious things with our space lasers. Yeah, I saw that. Yes, I felt good about that. I was like, where where do I sign up? I missed this the uh, meeting, I guess. Yes, you didn't make make the uh, the Jewish conspiracy meeting? Yeah, I, I'm sorry about that, guys. Maybe next time. Well, you guys started all the fires, too, right? Well, yeah, I think didn't, didn't um, Marjorie Taylor Greene say over the weekend that the Jews were also – shooting the Iron Man, the Burning Man conference with their space laser to create the floods that created the uh, the fraud of global warming or something like that. What's the big picture, guys? Best-selling books, <laughs> popular TV shows. We want to control the world. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants it? God, there's just more headaches. Well, I was going to say that. This is a plot for books, but there's reality versus fiction, and where do they, which is which? So, Lee, you've got a new book out, and it's centered on Malibu burning. And uh, how does an idea like that come to you? It comes to you when the fires of the, when the flames of the Malibu fire are licking at your house. How can I monetize this? <laughs> <laughs> I, I live in Calabasas, and, and we had to evacuate a few years ago because of a massive wildfire, the largest in Southern California history, perhaps in California history. But prior to that, I wrote a book called Lost Hills that ended with a fictional wildfire that devoured Southern California. And it was shocking to me when that fire actually came true. And I've, I've had this idea in the back of my head about pulling off a big heist in the midst of a massive wildfire. And I thought, oh, God, I can't do it because I already wrote about a wildfire in Lost Hills. 
But then I decided to make it the same fire, only seen from an entirely different perspective. And I drew it this time, not from my imagination, but from my own experience. Not that I was out there fighting fires, but I, I know what it's like to to have to evacuate your home because flames are rolling up the hillside toward your house. Yeah, yeah it's scary stuff. And uh, But now we have a checklist of what to pack in our car when we have to get up and go. Uh, it's it's one of the th- risks you have to keep in mind when you discover you actually live in what is a geological wildfire highway. Fires have been coursing through this area since the dawn of time, since California rose up from the sea, and we stupidly built houses in the middle of that fire highway. So we have to expect that occasionally we're going to have to move our butts because fire is rolling this way. Well, Lee, you took the fire story, and you you, know, you, you write certain kind of books, police procedurals, conspiracy, or... Um, Ice books. This is kind of a, a merging of those two together, those, those different kind of themes or storylines? Yes, because I want to get back to writing a big, over-the-top heist novel, sort of like the five I did with Janet Ivanovich. But um, my audience right now, if I can say that, uh, seems to expect police procedurals from me. So I, I tried to find a way to marry the police procedural with a big, wild, over-the-top heist con man uh, thriller. And... Um, Malibu burning came out of it. Only this time I'm not dealing with cops, per se. I mean, not I am dealing with cops, but not the usual cops you see in fiction, but rather arson investigators, which is something you don't see very much in, in this genre. Are you an arson expert now? I knew nothing about arson when I started this. I've got a whole bunch of textbooks and stuff. And I came up with what I, I don't reveal it to your readers, but, uh, listeners, but I came up with what I thought was a, a, no pun intended, novel way to start, start fires. And I ran it past this guy at the ATF, and he went, oh, crap. I went, what? That would work. Oh, do you want me to change it in my, in my book? No, no, no. I just got to go out and do it now. Do it? Yeah, I got to set some fires like this. You're going to set fires like this? And he did in their testing area there to see if they would be able to, to, to discover this if somebody else was using this method to start fires. And he sent me the videos and... The forensic results and everything was great. So you're an investigator like Sharp, um, Walter Sharp. How do you come up with that character? It comes out of the situation. You know, what would be the best character for the story I want to tell? And what kind of character would create the most conflict, the most humor, the most tension? And Walter Sharp just sort of emerged. He's sort of like Walter Matthau in the taking of Pelham 123. He's a, a jowly-faced uh Everyone calls him Sharpay because he has all those lines on his face. And he uses that that uh, dog face and that weariness and that natural skepticism that's baked into a face like that to his advantage. You know, after so many uh, books and TV shows and things like that, how do you how do you come up with characters now? Is it, like, is it real easy? Do you just have a stockpile in your mind or is, is it still difficult at all? It's still difficult. I would think that after all these books I've written and all these TV shows, it would get easier. It actually gets harder. Because you start writing something or thinking of something, and you realize, oh, crap, I already did that. And you're also more aware not only of the cliches out there, but your own personal cliches, the, the, the stuff you keep doing, your, your, your pitfalls creatively. So it gets harder and harder. You become a harsher judge of your own work. I'm waiting for it to get easier. It just hasn't happened yet. Yeah, but there's a universal truth in some of your characters in your writing is that there's always this level of humor that keeps the story and the, and the characters fresh. Am I misreading that, or am I, am I correct? No, no. I, I'm a firm believer that human human <laughs> humor, excuse me, is a is a is a big part of life. I don't buy 
the books where they're unremittingly dark and there's no humor. Because in my own personal life, even in my saddest, most tragic moments, there's always been some humor. And I think humor humanizes characters. I think if you have genuine humor, I'm not talking about one-liners and jokes, but humor that comes out of character and situation, it invests the reader in, in the people, in the characters. So for me, humor is essential. And I try not to let the humor overshadow the, the tension or the suspense or the mystery. Sometimes I find myself cutting humor, so I think it's going too far. But I, I think humor is inevitable in my books, and it should be inevitable in all crime novels. I just don't buy a situation where there isn't some, because it's not real. So when you develop these characters out of the situation, they're not the first thing on your mind. Um, so it's it's more the, the situation, and then you develop a character. That's not entirely true. I, I would say in most of my books, the character comes first, and then I think of what story would reveal that character most and challenge that character most and create the most conflict. Because I really think the story has to be integrally tied to the character, that it's it's unique to the, the the person you're writing about, that this story couldn't be told with a different character, at least not the way I'm telling it. Do you ever come across where you're, you're writing the character and not the right character? And then what do you do if that happens? Well, then I realize that my book is, is, is wrong. Uh, I mean, I've never, I've, I've had that happen in scenes. I haven't had it happen in a, overall in the book. But if a scene isn't working for the reasons you just laid out, then it's the the plot that's the problem. It's it's. I need to go back and rethink the story I'm telling, because I shouldn't have that issue if the character and plot are perfectly melded, that it's the right story for that character. Because each scene should reveal character and move the story forward. Each scene should reiterate, this is a, a mouthful of a phrase, if you're doing a series novel, each scene should reiterate the franchise. In other words, it should underscore what makes this series different from all the others and why this scene is unique and told in this way as only this series could tell it. If any other character could speak these lines or be in this situation, then your scene doesn't work. I just wrote that one down. How much do you know of your characters when you start then? Do you have them plotted all the way to the end, or are you learning with them as you go along? Well, I have, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in outlining. I don't do a detailed outline, but I do outline my entire book. I know exactly where the story is going. Particularly, I know how the mystery is solved. That doesn't mean I don't deviate from it. I call my outlines living outlines. I tend to finish them about two weeks before I finish the books. Because as I'm writing, I find myself making adjustments and changes as the characters reveal themselves and new ideas come to me. And then I revise my outline to incorporate those changes. And, and in this way, I, I, I always know what I'm doing when I sit down and write. I am not making up the plot as I go along. I believe that in most cases, I can tell when I'm reading a book that was not outlined. You can feel, you can see the, the writer treading narrative water while they're waiting for the story direction to come to them. And then when they spot it, they head that way, and they never go back and rewrite the treading water. And it's infuriating to me. Um, one of my mentors, the writer-producer Stephen J. Cannell, said, it's one thing just to get in a car and drive. It's another thing to get in a car and say, I'm going to drive from Los Angeles to New York, and I'm going to take the 10 freeway all the way. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't go off the 10 or end up taking other routes, but at least you know your direction. I'm going from L.A. to New York. And that's the way I feel about outlines. And in, in the case of a, of a mystery, you're not just telling a story, you're creating a puzzle. And that puzzle has to fit. It has to work. 
So I need to know what the clues are that I'm distracting readers from, but yet putting in front of them. I'm also a firm believer that the reader should be able to go back and see all the clues they missed. I believe in playing fair with the reader and not have my heroes discovering information that they don't disclose to the reader. So having that those, those two notions, telling a good story but also playing this game, creating this puzzle, performing this magic trick, requires me, I believe, to, to outline if I'm going to do it right. So this is a two-book series. So you already have two two books planned and plotted and outlined before the first one even comes out. No, no, that's not the case. In this case, I wrote Malibu Burning as a standalone, and the pre-orders for the book were so strong that my publisher came to me and said, we need a sequel and we need it quick. We want it available for pre-order when your book comes out. So I quickly wrote a, a sequel, which I delivered about uh, two, three weeks ago. But the, the, the book has been available for pre-order without a description or a cover, just the title. And apparently the sales have already been brisk, which is nice. And I just found out over the weekend at BoucherCon that they want me to do a third one. So I'm already thinking about what the third book might be. And, and I've come to the realization that um, my career is over. I've come out of ideas. <laughs> I'm out of ideas. Whatever skill I had, I've lost. So after this interview, I'm going to be submitting um, employment applications at Arby's. Oh, okay. That's it's, good. It'll take you. Yeah. Uh, your story's in the news, right? Isn't that where the stories come from? No, no. I don't know where they come from. I, I think of the character, and then the story comes to me as a way to, to reveal that character. In the case of Malibu Burning, that one was more a situation where I came up kind of with the with the story first, and then the, the, the characters came to me, and I reshaped the story to match the characters. Because I have these parallel plot lines in the book that that converge and it's almost like two novels that two separate novels that come together into one and that was also tricky how do you experience your characters then and that's a, that's kind of a cliche question but for you um are you seeing them hearing them and all that or is it like watching a movie like what's the experience for you for me it's like watching a movie i'm often surprised by what they say and do um, but the characters are smart enough to stay within my outline for the most part. But they'll say things, reveal things about themselves I, I didn't know, and they just come out of the... And sometimes I feel like I'm channeling spirits or something. Because if I'm really in the zone and, I'm, and, I'm, and the writing is flowing naturally, I'm as entertained and surprised as the reader by what comes out. And then the next day I go back and rewrite it, and the, the writer in me then crafts it. But I, I tend to just lay it all out without thinking much about it, and then the next day spend the first part of the day rewriting what I did the, the night before. So d does this happen to you when you're driving a car or anything like that? Well, I don't write when I drive a car, but I, I, do, I do think of <laughs> ideas at the strangest times. And my wife and my daughter know when it's happening. They can see the way my eyes glaze over. They either say, oh, you're, you're thinking about your book, or they're saying you're eavesdropping on a conversation that you're going to use for your book. If I'm in a restaurant or something. What do you hope people get out of your book? Pure entertainment. I'm not trying to change the world or push a social message or anything like that. I'm not trying to be literary. I'm trying just to entertain and, and give my readers an escape from whatever their troubles are, from the, the stress that they have. Just a really good time. I'm not, I'm not trying to become a Nobel Prize, Pulitzer Prize winning author or anything like that. In fact, if I'm succeeding... My writing disappears. You don't really pay attention to my writing, and you just see it all playing out in your imagination. If my writing calls attention to itself, 
then in some ways I think I failed. So this is more of a, a thank you than a question, perhaps, because I was I actually heard you say that once on a podcast or somewhere. I had my headphones on just recently, and I heard that, and I deleted two chapters out of my book because they were just not moving the story. They were not entertaining. So your words have impact. And so it's more of a thank you, but do you think about that? Was your writing the impact that your sort of your brand of entertainment has on the industry? No, I never think about that. I don't think I have any impact on the industry. I'm always surprised when people say things like you just did or, or even say I'm a, a fan of your work. I, I just, whatever my popularity is or lack thereof, I really don't have a sense of it. Um, I'm still just a mystery fan at heart. I'm still a geek. I get really excited meeting writers at BoucherCon and other conferences, and I'm always flattered that they'll talk to me or, you know, spend time with me. Um, I had a guy come up to me at BoucherCon, in fact, saying that he was a fan of my work, and he'd seen me at other conferences, but he was always too intimidated to come up to me, which I just find absolutely unbelievable. I think of myself as the least intimidating person there is. I mean, um, I, I can't imagine anyone being intimidated by me. I told him not to. I was glad he came forward and that he shouldn't be intimidated by any authors. We all love hearing how wonderful we are. We don't get it enough at home. You know, I went, I'm not, I, it just sounds like I'm dropping names, but um, I once worked on a movie with Kevin Costner. The movie didn't get made, but I spent a lot of time with him. And you know, one day in a, in a lull in our, in our working conversation, I said, so what, what was it like in your marriage when you were named by People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive? And he said, you know, your family's not impressed by that. How dare you? He said, my wife would say, hey, sexiest man alive. The toilet seat doesn't put itself down. Hey, sexiest man alive. Could you help me with the laundry? <laughs> At home, you're not a superstar. And uh, I don't know why I mentioned that anecdote. But it's – I'm always surprised by authors who, who say things like, my new book is so damn good. I mean, it's not – it's almost as excellent as my last book. And uh, it's why I'm still a powerhouse in the industry. I don't get those people. Um, I just can't imagine being that person. Yeah, you get too involved in the noise, you know, and stuff. So writing for TV or movies as compared to writing your own book, what do you prefer? They're two very different ways of writing. When you're writing for television, you're not writing alone. You're writing with a group of other people. And a lot of people have input into what you're doing because your, your script isn't a piece of creative writing on its own. It's a blueprint for other people to go out and do the work that they have to do. For the location manager to find locations and the set designer to build sets, the director to plan shots, for actors to learn their lines, for wardrobe people to find costumes, for the, the producers to budget. I mean, there's a million things they're looking at when they read that script, and they all make contributions to the end result. So it's a, it's a whole different and, – and the way you tell stories is different. You have to show, not tell. The story has to be conveyed entirely through dialogue and action. If you don't see it or hear it, it doesn't happen. And in some ways, I've, I've found that being a TV writer and a screenwriter has made my novel writing better because I've, I've taken the techniques of writing a script and tried to apply that to my novels. In fact, lately, I've started um, – one of the benefits of writing a script is I can do it very fast. I could write a script in a, in a week or two. You know, novels take me five months. So rather than be in the middle of a novel and find out it's not working or there are plot problems or whatever, what I've started doing is I write my books first as a script. Not a script that I would ever show my agent or try to sell. It's entirely for me. I'm just laying the story out in action and dialogue. 
to see if it works. I, I get up on its feet. So I, I know my novel works or doesn't work after two weeks. I, I get the whole thing out there, the, the, the whole story, at least in terms of dialogue and, and action, and I can, I can see, okay, this works, this doesn't, here's where I have problems, here's where it lags. And then when I start writing the novel, I'm not discovering it as I go because 99% of the dialogue is already written, and I have my outline, and then I'm, I'm reshaping it. I'm sort of novelizing my script as I write these books. And, and for me, most of the hard work is done when I've written the outline and the script version. When I start writing the actual novel, I'm, I'm into the fun. I'm into the characters and, and coloring between the lines. And, and that system has worked well for me. I can get the book out of my system as a script right away, and um, that, that feels very good. While, while the excitement is high and the enthusiasm is high and I have the energy, I get it right out. So what's the difference between your character development between uh, TV, film, and books? There is no difference. And the characters have to express themselves in television and what they say and do. And that's really hard. Because in a book, you can have description and you can have internal monologues and you can tell us what they're thinking. You can't do that in a script. You have to convey who they are by what they do and what they say and how they dress and how they react. And that's a, that's a tough skill to learn. And to do it without laying out all kinds of exposition and dialogue is really hard as well. But I think those are good lessons for any novelist to learn. In fact, I would urge most novelists to learn all about writing scripts, even if they have no intention of ever doing a script, because it will make your novel writing so much better. So what's the most important part of the book? The most important part is the characters. If you have strong characters, the reader will forgive you almost anything. You know, if, they, if they invest themselves in the characters, then if the story isn't too wildly outlandish, they're along for the ride. So, so how do you how do you make it so that that character means a lot to a lot of people? Like I'm trying to write a book here. What would what would you recommend to me? Well, you have to create a character that readers are make, willing to make an emotional investment in. You're asking a reader to spend an awful lot of time with the character you're creating, and also as an author, I have to spend five months with these characters. Do I want them in my head in my life for five months? Are they are they characters I'm going to enjoy? writing that I'm going to enjoy being in the heads of. And then I, I feel if I can enjoy it, if I look forward to, to getting back to these characters, that my my readers will too, or my viewers. It's why I don't think I could ever write a book like Silence of the Lambs. I just don't want to spend time in the head of a that dark a character. Um, it's just not where I want to be. My villains, and I put quotation marks around that, are not just bad people. They have lives. They have sense of humor. They have families. They have goals and desires beyond whatever crime or evil thing they're doing. They aren't defined by the evil thing they're doing. That's something I learned uh, from Stephen J. Cannell, mentor of mine, but also what I've learned through osmosis reading Larry McMurtry and John Irving. I mean, even their bad people, again, in quotation marks, see themselves as the heroes of their own stories. And both John Irving and, and Larry McMurtry have created what I like to call amiable villains. You, there are things you can like about them. I mean, The Sopranos is a good example of that. We all loved watching The Sopranos, even though the people were loathsome individuals. At the same time, they were us. They had families and bills to pay and, and family obligations and disappointments and emotional problems. And, yeah, they killed and stuff for a living. But... All that, too. Your characters have to be 
I, I use this term loosely, likable, even if they're loathsome. And so that's how you get through writing that said the evil person in the book. I have to understand them. I have to be in their head and and see, my, if I'm writing the bad guy, see myself as the hero of my story. It's not the detective, it's me. I'm the good guy. It's the detective that's the bad guy. And I just keep, and also something that Steve Cannell taught me was the bad guys, again, I'm using that term as a generalization, have lives. They're doing other things besides waiting around for the, the good guy to come after them or, or worrying about the good guy. They have ongoing things in their lives. So I always ask myself when I go into a scene with a bad, good guy and a bad guy, what is the bad guy doing when the good guy interrupted him? What, what is the bad guy's goal? What, is, what, what, what did he wake up this morning wanting to do? And how is this scene getting in his way? What else is on his mind while he is talking to the good guy? And again, I think that humanizes the bad guy as well. He's thinking about the $1 million he's going to get. <laughs> yes. The, yeah. Taking the moon. <laughs> oh, violence on the page. Do you think about that when you write it and how you write it? The violence has to come out of character. I was talking, again, I'm dropping names again. But I was talking to Thomas Perry at BoucherCon. I don't know if you've seen the uh, FX adaptation of his book, The Old Man. But the first episode of The Old Man, starring Jeff Bridges, has what I think is maybe, if not the best, one of the best fights I've ever seen on film. And what makes the fight so good is it's all about character. It's not just the balletic moves of a John Wick or whatever. It tells a story. It, it reflects the characters. It has a beginning, middle, and end. You have a 70-year-old man having a fight with a 30-year-old FBI agent who's a bad guy. And how is this 70-year-old man going to win a fight with a 30-year-old man in peak physical condition? And it's because the 70-year-old man has skills that the younger man doesn't. But the fight, you can see them both getting tired. You can see what they're both thinking. You can see how, how each move they make in the fight is a reflection of their past and how they were trained and their culture and their, their age. It was brilliant. So when I think of a fight, I don't think of entertainment. I think of what is each character trying to achieve here and what are they feeling as the fight is going on and, and from whose point of view am I, am I depicting this fight? And what does it mean to them? What are they feeling? So if the violence is integral to character, if the violence comes out of plot, if it's not just there for the gore or the, or, or the action, then it's a great fight. Then it has meaning. Then it will stick with you. Because fighting in and of itself, it's like sex scenes. Sex is not that complicated. We all know how to do it. We've all done it. And for me, for a sex scene to work, it has to be an expression of character. It's not just the physical act of what they're doing. And, and the same is true of a fight scene or a car chase or any form of, of action. Is setting a character for you? Absolutely. In um, my Eve Ronan books and Malibu Burning, the action is primarily in the Lost Hills jurisdiction of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. It's a island within Los Angeles that is surrounded by a sea of other jurisdictions. And within this island of the Lost Hills jurisdiction, you have the mountains, you have Malibu, you have Calabasas, you have movie studio backlots, you have rural, you have um, national parks, state parks. It's, it's a microcosm of, of society in one little area, and it's never been written about before. 
and so it's it's a character to me and and I have to put my reader there but even if I'm not writing about my backyard when I was writing the Fox and O'Hare books with Jan Ivanovich or even my Ian Ludlow spy novels I traveled all over the world I would go to Macau or I'd go to Antwerp or I'd go to Australia or whatever wherever my books were taking place and I needed to make my reader feel the place sense how it was different what the smells and tastes and textures were of that place I don't think that's something you can get from a guidebook. You've actually got to go there and, and feel it and find the one or two telling details that will make the place come alive as a character for the reader. So what happens to your characters after the books are done? They live. They're still alive. When I come back to them, it's almost as if I have to fill myself in on what they've been doing. The five Eve Ronan novels all take place within 12 months, one 12-month period. So I'm, I'm almost picking up within a week or so of where I've left off with the characters in that series. And that makes it fresh and energetic for me when I'm writing it. I don't know. I, Malibu Burning, the sequel, takes place uh, 12 months after the first novel. But um, I don't know, as I start writing the third one, where it will pick up from where I left off. you have a favorite character that stays with you? No, they all stay with me. I think if I had to go back right now and write a, another Monk novel or write another Fox and O'Hare novel, I could do it. They're still there in the back of my mind. How do you think each book changes you, or does it? Well, each book challenges me in a new way because I don't want to repeat myself. So I have to find, as I'm plotting each book, a way to – because that also makes me want to write them. If I'm just going from – you'll play if I'm just – Doing it formulaically, um, if I'm just manufacturing the story, then I'll be bored and my, my reader or viewer will be bored. I, do, I just don't want to just connect the dots. I, I want to do something fresh and new that challenges me. And sometimes I resent myself for doing it. <laughs> sometimes it gets really hard, like Malibu Burning. I had to create a spreadsheet for the two timelines so I knew exactly where they were going to meet up and what was going on. And I vowed I would never do that again. And then I did it again. I did it for a book called Calico, uh, which is coming out in November. It's a it's a dual timeline story, a police procedural set in present day and a period Western set in 1883 that share the same dead body. And um, it was a nightmare to plot that. Do you, you mentioned reader. Do you think about your reader as you're writing your... I think about... Yes, I do. I, but there are two stages of writing. There's the stage where I'm just putting it on the page. And then there's the next day when I rewrite. When I'm rewriting is when I think about the reader. Is this boring? Is it lagging? Is there too much exposition here? Can I do some cutting? Um, can I make it move faster? Would, would I still be interested if I were reading this right now? And I, I would say that I cut so much of my own work. I really is, is my another one of my mentors, a writer producer named Michael Cleason, who created Remington Steel. He says that you know the terrible thing about being a writer is you have to kill so many of your babies. You have to kill stuff you really like. Cut so much stuff. I never throw it away. I, I have a book called Junk a book, excuse me, a file called Junk that I put all the stuff I cut into because sometimes I go back and, and find scenes and moments that I cut from other books that will work in new books that I'm doing. Do you have this all sort of planned out or do the ideas just come to you accidentally or they come to you for whatever way and how do you know that you're going to write that book? Is there some sort of clue to, for you? I have to be excited about it and I have to be scared by it. Those are the two things. I have to really want to do it and also think that I can't. And that motivates me to push through but i don't always have to i don't always make the choice um I, I don't want to reveal too many details about balibu burning but when i met with my editors over the weekend at VoucherCon, 
and they said, we want a third book from you. They also had some marching orders, which was, we want to see X, Y, and Z in the third book. So I have to come up with a story that satisfies those requirements. There are some things that, based on the feedback they've been getting from readers on, I mean, Malibu Burning already has something like 6,000 reviews. I haven't read them, but apparently my editors have been, if not reading them all, scanning them, and they've, they've come up with some takeaways from the reviews of some things they would like to see in the third book that they think the readers will really appreciate or want. So I have to craft a plot that will do all those things. Plus, I have desires of my own that need to be in that book. I have to come up with a really great arson that's perplexing and how do I solve it. And also I need to think of new conflicts for my characters. So that arson will come out of the conflict I want to create for the characters. And you know, as I sit here today, I don't have the answers to any of those questions. And that's why I think my career is over. Because at the moment, my mind is a blank. Now, it will. I know myself well enough to know that it will come to me eventually. I mean, I'll reveal a deep, dark secret to you right now. On my wall, I have the covers of some of my books, and I have screen grabs of some of my television credits. And they're not up there to boast, because no one comes in my office but me and my wife and my, my family. It's up there to remind me in my bleak, dark moments that I've done this before that I've been in the same position before, and I will get through it. So, so I often look at that wall going, you can do it, Lee. You can do it. Look up there at the wall. You've done it. You, this, is, this is not the end. You'll, you'll push through. So that's kind of where I am today as I'm speaking to you, wondering what the hell am I going to do in this next book, and can I pull it off? Well, we're, we're sure that you will. And you, I'm glad you're sure. I'm sure. Just call Joe. He'll help you out. Yeah, I'll help you. I need somebody to collaborate with. I'm sure you need somebody else to collaborate with. Well, I'm, hey, let's talk collaboration. How do you like that? Um, television writing is collaboration. So I've spent years collaborating with authors and writers. And so for me, the, the first collaborations I did were with my television writing partner. We did a series of novels for um, Amazon called The Dead Man that we treated like a TV series. We hired other writers to write our stories and we had a new book come out every month we did 24 of them but also i've written books based on the tv series monk and in that case i was collaborating with the creator of monk i had to run my ideas past him and i was voicing his character and, and doing things with his character which he had entrusted me with and then with janet ivanovich she and i were friends long before we were writing together and uh that partnership, I mean, every collaboration works differently. My collaborations with, with uh, Bill Rabkin that I did for 25 years in television are different than the collaboration I did with Janet Ivanovich. It, it comes out of form, because in television you're writing a script. Um, with Janet, I was writing a book, so it's a little bit different. So it's, it's what I try to do in a collaboration is not to imitate the other writer's voice or vice versa. I, I told Janet that I'm not going to try to write in your voice and you shouldn't expect me to. If I could write in your voice, I'd be doing it already, and I'd be as successful as you. We're going to have to create a new voice, one that's not you and one that's not me, that's uh, Janet Berg you know, or Leovich. It's <laughs> a new voice that we can both write in comfortably that is neither one of us so that the reader won't be able to tell what you wrote and what I wrote, and it'll still reflect our attitudes about telling stories. And I think we pulled that off. I don't think readers can necessarily tell who wrote what. In fact, on those occasions when I've read reviews and someone will say, oh, that's clearly a Janet line. No, that was me. And vice versa. They'll say, oh, this is clearly Goldberg. No, that was Janet. It, it, it amuses me, and but it also tells me we succeeded. Well, if you, I, I might 
change gears here because you've written for TV movies, you've written the books, and obviously the industries have changed. I was wondering if you could, for those who are aspiring or listening or want to get in there or want to be the star or whatever, how how has the industry changed or what should we be looking at to to make that break in the new writing world? Well, the publishing and television industries have changed fundamentally and massively. I could spend the next hour just talking about television and then spend another hour talking about publishing. I mean, the Writers Guild strike right now, the SAG strike right now, are a reflection of the massive ways in which the television and film industries have changed and the ways we have to fundamentally rethink how we are interacting with that industry as, as writers and artists. It's, it's why this strike is so important. In terms of publishing, the landscape has completely changed. The, the rise of the ebook and um, you know, e-readers and, and Amazon and, and now the ease of self-publishing where anybody can have their book on the Amazon and, and Barnes and & Noble marketplaces sharing shelf space with James Patterson within seconds has, has, has totally reshaped the landscape and, and the way the business works. I don't know how you'd break in today. There are so many avenues to do it, but now with so many people self-publishing, discoverability is a huge issue. And, and so, so much of what is self-published is just unimaginable excrement. I mean, it's just <laughs> horrible. I mean, just because you can self-publish doesn't mean you should. Just be, the fact that you can be on the shelf next to James Patterson means you've got to be as good as him. And, you know, once you've you know, pooped out one god-awful novel and self-published it, that you, you can't change people's first impressions of you. Um, I, I, it's, a, it's a huge mistake for most authors, aspiring authors who self-publish, because they're just destroying any future career they might have. They're, they're trying to learn in public, and you just can't do that. It's, it's, I'm baffled by some of the crap that people have self-published. Uh, it's astonishing to me. But right now, it's, it's so hard for smaller publishers, mid-level publishers, to stay afloat in this world, because how do you, how do you market a book? How do you advertise a book in a world where thousands of new books are being added to Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and Kobo each day by uh, this tsunami of self-published authors? It's, um, it's tough. And, and the numbers of publishers now who are willing to take a risk on a first-time author is dwindling. It's, uh, I don't know if I could break through today. It's a whole new world. Well, you could always fall back on being the Daniel Craig impersonator. Yes, that, that pays the bills between books and, and uh, TV assignments. Yeah, you must be, like, filling in in the love scenes. and the. <laughs> but, but because of this voice that I now have, I've had to cut down on my audiobook narrating. <laughs> Did you know you were going to be where you are now when you were young and breaking into the writing or just starting to write? Did you, did you have the confidence back then that you thought, well, I'll, I'll be published, I'll, be, I'll, I'll make it? Yes, I did. I've, I've been writing my entire life. I've, I've been writing books since I was a little kid. My mom had framed, you know, when you're in second grade, first or second grade, you, you write on those big sheets of paper with the big lines already on them. I still do. Uh, I, I wrote on there, I want to tell stories. I've wanted to do this since I was a kid. I was selling stories that I would write on carbon paper to my friends and people in our cul-de-sac for, you know, 15 cents. I, I, I've, I've been writing novels my, and, and scripts my entire life, and it dawned on me the other day when I was writing that I am literally 
doing the same thing now that I was doing when I was 12 years old. I'm sitting here in front of a, well, in this case, not a typewriter anymore, it's a computer, but I'm sitting in front of the blank page telling stories while listening to TV and movie themes. Exactly what I was doing when I was a kid. And at times I want to go back and, and tell a little me, it's going to work. You're going to be doing exactly this when you grow up. It's, uh, but I never doubted it. It was stupid of me, but I just, I never doubted that I would end up writing books and writing for television, that, that it would happen for me. And maybe I had that confidence because I had a foot kind of in each industry. My father was a television anchorman where I grew up in San Francisco. He was on the 6 and 11 o'clock news. I don't know if I can do his voice with the vocal cord issues I'm having today, but he always talked like this. Even in casual conversation, he talked like he was doing a television report. Hello, Lee. How was school today? Please pass the salt. And he talked like that his entire life. And uh, so seeing my dad on TV made TV seem, I think, accessible to me, not something that was strange and impossible to achieve. My mother was a uh, feature writer and gossip columnist for the local newspaper. So she was in print all the time. So the notion of getting into print didn't seem so foreign to me. My, my mom and dad could do it. I could do it. So I ended up doing what they both did, but from entirely different perspectives. I told stories on TV. And I, I did start out as a journalist, but then became a novelist. Okay, so now, do you do social media? Where do people find Lee besides BoucherCon? Well, today, to survive as, a, as an author, you've got to be all over the place in social media. I'm easy to find. I'm Lee Goldberg on Twitter. I'm Lee Goldberg on all the other social networks. And um, I'm LeeGoldberg.com. I'm everywhere. I'm impossible to escape. You'll find myself promoting everywhere. The ubiquitous Goldberg. Yes. <laughs> Have you broken into TikTok yet? No, no, I haven't crossed that line yet. But I am in all those Twitter alternatives just because eventually Twitter is going to implode. I'm going to have to – I stake my flag at all the other ones, waiting to see which one, you know, Threads, Blue Sky, whatever, is going to emerge as the, as the new social media platform. Yeah, you have to sit and wait. Well, um, it's been a great conversation. We always love listening, listening to uh, – your advice. So, of course, the new book is called Malibu Burning, and our guest is the writer, Lee Goldberg. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Now I've got to go calibrate my space laser. Go do it, sir. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. <laughs>